This is Paris. This is Chuck D. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM, WGDR. Plainfield. We're going to change the system. Think about it. That's the way it was, that's the way it is, and it's always changing, and it is always the same. How's that for psychedelic? We are all seekers after truth. This, 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 this is a special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I am a traveler. A wanderer. It's always changing and it is always the same. The same. The same. Yo, 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 take it out. The world is listening. Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Melba Patillo Beals is a former journalist, 
retired university professor and the acclaimed best-selling author of Warriors Don't Cry, a searing memoir of the battle to integrate Little Rock Central High School. In 1998, she was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. She's one of only 280 civilians in American history to receive that award for her courageous role in the harrowing integration of our nation's school system. And she's the author of a new book, March Forward Girl, From Young Warrior to Little Rock Nine, about her life growing up as a child in Little Rock, which was controlled by the heavy hand of the Ku Klux Klan, who beat, raped, and lynched black people with complete impunity anytime they wanted. Melba, you've done so much and been through so much in your life. I have. I've been through a lot, and I think, you know, March Forward Girl is a prequel to Warriors because it tells you what happened when I was a little girl, between zero and 14. And by the time I was three, I knew I was in the wrong place because even though I was a child, I could observe how sad it was for my parents when they would go grocery shopping or whatever, they would become mongoloid idiots. They were intelligent. My mother had an IQ large enough to be invited to join Menza. She spoke six languages. And yet, in the grocery store, she and my father and grandmother, who were very literate people, yasa, nosa, they would allow themselves to be punished and treated with disrespect. And, of course, that hurt my heart because I wonder why, you know. I couldn't understand what was going on. And so as I got a little bit older... When I was four, I said, exactly, where did I come from? And uh, they said, the stork delivered you. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I went and I parked my wagon in front of the house, determined to wait for the stork to come back over to deliver someone else. And I said, I'm going to flag a ride out of here. That's how bad it was. I wanted out when I was very little, you know. And you say in this powerfully harrowing book that the dominant feeling you had as a child growing up in Little Rock was fear. Fear was my only friend for a long time. I could feel different kinds of fear, rumbling in my tummy from head to toe, rolling fear, hot cheeks was when you knew it was time to close the curtains because the Klan was coming, or you heard noise. Someone had run down the back alley and come into the backyard and said, they're here, they're here, they're here. You know, announcement of the Klan. Fear when we went to the grocery store. I mean, it was just unbelievable. So you used to hide and listen to the adults talking about what was going on and the current threats in the community. How old were you when you first became aware of this racial oppression in your world? Well, as I said, I was like three. I was really young. And it was not before anything they said to me. It was how they behaved. They were so strong and tall. But when we went out, it was like kowtow. Was also, we couldn't touch anything. Like in the grocery store, how you want to go choose what you want. None of that. The clerk would say, Auntie, you're an uppity nigger, but give me, you know, don't touch that baking powder. That was the one thing I specifically remember my grandmother going up to was a box of baking powder. Calumet, remember that? Baking powder. Yeah. And the guy said, don't touch that. I'll get it for you because if you touch anything in here then the other folks won't want to buy it, you know. So I remember that, and looking back and writing about myself, I was a very odd child, psychic, sensitive, very bright child, so that I wasn't really three mentally. I have to be careful as a parent 
your children are one age physically, but then the question is, where have they been mentally and where are they mentally? They're often quite different mentally than you perceive. Mm-hmm. And then I used to listen to the adults all the time because I thought, there is data here that I need to collect because these people are miserable and they spend half their time talking about how to satisfy the white folks. I'm sick of that. And they assumed that you didn't understand what they were talking about. They thought I was three. But if you look at a picture of me at that age, my eyes are so bad and so perceptive. I have huge, huge eyes. At one point, there's a picture of me standing in this little suit on the street, and they took a picture of me up close my face. My eyes are just like, wow, I have landed in the wrong place. These are the wrong people, and I want out now. <laughs> it just looked like I was under complete stress. My forehead was wrinkled, and I looked like I'm worried. And as, as you see the pictures of me growing up, you'll see that I'm very worried. Mm-hmm. So considering the overwhelming fear that you grew up with as a child, where did the courage come from to enter an all-white school knowing that you weren't wanted there? Well, because it was driving fear. I saw a man hanged in the ceiling of my church at age five. To this day, if I lay down and take the wrong nap. I will see his feet hanging in the very oddest and lifeless position, and I will hear the ground and grunt in his throat when that rope took its toll. And I remember my grandmother saying, his batteries run out. I said, will he be back to fix our window? She said, his batteries run out. So I had to do something. I was always a driven little girl. I mean, my grandmother said I was for sure... She said, I don't know where you came from because you're a renegade. I was a renegade. I was like, when that man died in that church, and there were about 75 folks in there, guess what my thought was? I was only five. I said, hey, look ahead. Right I only saw one shotgun. There were five or six men in those sheets, right? And then one shotgun. I thought to myself, all right, so six, ten of you go after him. Ten of you hit the ground, but let the other 65 be okay. I mean... Be willing to die rather than sacrifice your freedom and your integrity. You know, that's how I was angry at them, angry at my fellow African-Americans because, look at here, let's do something, you know. And they weren't doing anything, it seemed to me. I mean, were we really going to just stand there and take all that or what are we going to do, you know? So let's talk about those unwritten rules that were drilled into you incessantly as you were growing up and that... Black people in the South were also brought up with, and why they put up with it for so long. Well, the rules were taken from Jim Crow, and they and in the beginning, you don't know that these are things that are written down. You only see the signs that say white and colored. You only see yourself skittering when you're five to the tacky colored bathrooms in the basement. You only see that your water fountain is rusty and over in the dark corner. And theirs is pretty freshly painted with maybe a flower on it. You only see that their bathroom has lilies on the door, and the door was yellow. I know this one bathroom, this one department store was yellow, bright yellow. I was dying to go in that bathroom for a year. And I was determined, I'm going in that bathroom, that white bathroom, see what's in there. Because my bathroom was down the hall, way down the stairs. And from the time you can walk on the sidewalk, they say, hey, don't ever look white people in the eye. You can't look them in the eye. Remember, Emmett Till died accused of looking a white woman in the eye. 
I remember going home when I had gotten away for one Christmas in 1959, and my uncle was losing his job because he was accused of looking at the white woman on his job in the eye. I was devastated because I said, this late, this is the year 1959 of our Lord Jesus, and my uncle's getting fired for what reason, did you say? And so as we're growing up, of course, the adults repeat these rules to us in, the, in public. My grandmother could say one word, and my brother and I would straighten up like soldiers. And the one word was decorum. That's all. That's all she had to say. And we would shut up, stand up. And the thing that got me when I was about five was you can't touch toys and prep for Christmas. I'd see dollies that I want to touch the dress. You know, you can't touch anything downtown. You can go look. You can't try on anything. You could look. Don't touch it. Uh-uh-uh. And so shopping isn't as much fun. If you pick it up, you got to buy it. And sitting on the back of the bus, like once when I was very young, probably the first time I ever got on the bus, first or second time, I took a seat right in front, and the driver slapped me. There's no sitting in front of the bus, no drinking out of a water fountain that is not marked N-I-G-G-E-R or colored. You know, the list is long. Don't go in certain neighborhoods after dark. You can't go in certain stores at all. Be careful that you're sitting in the right section of the doctor's office. He only offered service a couple of days a week. And then he had a white waiting room and a colored waiting room. Make sure you're in the right room, people. So no cafeterias would feed you. Don't enter the wrong grocery store or you'll be knocked out of that. No merry-go-rounds, no swimming in the pool. Shall I go on? Because these things went on forever. Never look a white person in the eye. Never hit a white person. Never talk to a white person unless they speak to you first. And no matter what they call you, say you or do to you, don't talk back to them. Got all that? Oh, yeah. I mean, reading the book was harrowing. I mean, particularly at the beginning, even though I was familiar with this history, as I was reading at the beginning of the book, I sunk into terrible despair. Oh, my God, yes, dear. Dear heart, yes. So talk about the consequences of breaking any of these rules. What happened to people? Emmett Till was killed. You could get hanged. You could disappear forever. There were several people in my life who, when I was five, six, and seven, just disappeared forever. Mr. Poo-Poo's wife is gone. Mr. Poo-Poo is gone. Mr. So-and-so is gone forever. He must have done something to the white people, they would say. Nobody would go looking for him. He'd be found years later at a you know, stuck in the mud or in the river or somebody goes fishing and his body would float to the top. Um, when I go to Little Rock, I stay in this hotel that looks down on the Arkansas River because half my cousins are in there. And, you know, relatives and friends are in that river. And so I always say, can I have a room on that side that looks over the river so I can visit relatives because they're there, you know. And so anything that, you know, any sign... That you're uppity, they had that word uppity. Any sign that you were not humble and did not take their orders. Any sign that you were doing anything, like, for example, when it got to grow dark, like in the summertime, it's just black folks like to sit out and barbecue and listen to music, like on our block, some of the greatest, some of what would later on be the greatest singers in the world used to come practice in Little Rock, like the soul singers. Uh, I can Tina Turner used to come down because they lived in the South. And it, apparently there was a guy who lives across the street that produced music. So there was a lot going on across the street from where I lived. And 
come dark, baby, everything's pulled in. Your front porch chairs, your whatever you're doing in the backyard, because you don't want to look like you're living high on the hog. You know? What was your understanding of why white people treated black people this way? They couldn't give you a great understanding of that. They would say, the Lord loves us equally. And I would always say one thing, which is, if that's true, tell him we'll be in charge Jan to June. Let those people pick up July to December. My mother used to say to me, God loves us equally. There is no difference. And even when I was four and five, she'd take us to this, I'll never forget this ice cream store downtown. It was called Double Deck. Now, we would have to stand back in the corner, don't touch anything, and when all the other customers were waited on, we could be waiting on. And Grandmother would take us up, and we could look in the mirrors. Don't stand too close. Don't breathe on it. We could look in the glass at the ice cream, and the guy would point, and she would say, see that strawberry ice cream? See the vanilla? See the chocolate? God loves them all equally. They all taste good. They're all chills. They'll all make you smile. But God has to have his own, his own cone, and you'll have your own cone. Doesn't mean that you discarded the other, see? So she started her lessons, you know, early. But the truth was that we had to obey those rules, and there is no getting out of the baby cakes, none at all. And if you cross them, you're going to get beat, like once Klan wrote my neighborhood, burned down the house, hung the people in the backyard like clothes, including children. And so the retribution for this was huge. And so, you know, just don't cross that line. Just don't do it. Because, yes, some people got beaten and got returned. Some people got totally disabled and then got returned. And you could see them in their altered states after being punished by the white folks. So now everything they did was more of an emphasis on if you do this, terrible things will happen to you. And you're asking me what drives you to want to go. Well, after a while, you understand there were two things I understood. I wrote this book for two reasons. One, so all children, no matter where they come from, will know you are equal at birth. There is no waiting for somebody to endow you with equality. You are already. No matter what's going on or who treats you what way, you're already equal. But the other thing was I was writing another book called I Will Not Fear, which is the book that summarizes my life. And the woman said to me, I don't understand why you have so much faith in God. And I said, because if you're little in the South, imagine this. If you don't have the police, the firemen, or any community support, well, pretty soon you understand that your only, only way out is to have a God that will support you and lift you upward. So that's why I'm so religious. Because when you're growing up in Little Rock, is that all you have? And I was so loud about my feelings. Little, my grandmother said, okay, don't say anything else to anybody else. Write letters. So at like four, I started writing letters to God. Dear God, are you kidding? Why do I have to drink out of the water? You know, why can't I ride on the bus? Why can't I go? Mostly your letters about why can't I go to the fair park and ride on the merry-go-round? And why can't I touch the dollies? And, you know, why don't you let me sit on Santa's lap? And when she had me write all that down, I was also a very psychic little girl. Like, I'd walk up to people and I'd say, you know, your husband's gone forever. Your daddy won't be back. Or there's a baby in your tummy. 
So after a while, the parishioners started to offer my grandmother chickens and meat and eggs and stuff for me to do psychic readings of them. But of course, she believes that that is against the tenor of the Bible. So she told me to go home and shut up. And the words that I could use in church were, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, I feel fine. But that's it. Not another word. Do you still have that gift? Yes, very much so. so I would be quite dead if I did not, trust me. Uh-huh. To survive what I survived, I think each and every individual born has that gift. But I think in order to be black and south, some of us have it more than others, and it has to be developed. And there are reasons why I have it. Instinctually, when I was a reporter, the other reporters, the news reporters used to tease me about, they'd go one way, I'd go the other. And after a while, they'd start to follow me because I'd have an instinct that, you know, you would be checking your story out over there. But where it's really going on is over there, you know. And I would just have this weird, like once I got on a plane, okay, and it was rolling away from the gate at San Francisco Airport. I don't know what, my, my stomach. It was like a siren in my stomach. Like a siren in the South when I was in line waiting to be hanged, that kind of siren. Most people don't know the feeling of standing in line and the ropes over the tree and you know that you're next. And you see somebody hanged in front of you. That's the feeling that develops you as a human being. And I got that feeling sitting in the airplane seat. So the guy's rolling backwards trying to get on the tarmac to get out of there. And I go up front and say, i got to get off. got to get off. He says, what are you saying? Sit down and shut. And, you know, and I said, nope, got to get off. And that plane crash landed at its destination. Nobody was killed, as I remember, but, you know, who knows, I might have been. So, yes, I still have that. I'm blessed with that, yes. Except in certain areas where I don't have it. There's a story that you tell, which you titled Angel in a White Sheet. And that was a woman who was with the Klan. And you can tell that story, but my point is that it seemed as though you were also protected, that you had an angel looking after you. No question. That's one of the things I write about in my other book, which has come out pretty simultaneously. Is That's why I'm not afraid is because my grandmother, when we were children, said, God is as near as your cheek. Just touch it. Touch your right cheek. God's right there. If you really need him, he'll be there. And I write about warriors. There's a time that we're at school. It's the first time I ever went to dental high school. And there was a mob about to hang us. And I was 15, and I had never, ever tried that out before. You know, that whole thing of what Grandma said. Until then, Sunday school, the Bible, her talk was just words. Because, you know, you're a kid. You know, hey, you know, i got to go to church. I'm going to be there for two hours. Either try to think about something else or take your crayon. Occasionally you listen. You don't listen all the time, you know. So I thought, you know, geez, let's see. Because we were being chased by mom, my mother and me. And they were carrying ropes, and they said what they were going to do to us before they hung us. It was terribly insulting and hurtful, and we were running as breakneck fast as we can. And I just started screaming the Lord's Prayer aloud. And then I thought that the Lord would send rescue, you know, a band of angels, police, on horse, whatever. It was just that there was this limb across the sidewalk that had fallen off of a tree, and... I went around one end, and my mother went around the other end. As a result, we got away, because they all fell in a clump, hurting themselves 
Whereas we raced to the car back down the street faster than I'd ever driven forward and got home. And we only got home because of that intervention by God. And so this little woman at this, um, I had been kidnapped off the street. I was, that was where I shouldn't have been, to tell you the truth. I was disobeying my mother. I was walking up this very dismal road that is the road to Gillingham Park out there. And it was just being built then. It hadn't yet been built. And I was walking up this road trying to get home when, in fact, my mother had dispatched my aunt to come pick me up. And I knew that, but I, you know, I was stubborn an individual. I wanted to do what I wanted to do, so... I left the event early without anybody knowing on um, these roads that had not even barely been called yet. And I was walking up this road, and this truck came down. It was full of plants when it would turn out. And I wouldn't get in the truck, and this guy shot at me, grazed my left arm. So I ended up going to where they were going, which was this clearing in the woods. There's tons of plants in there. Like, you know, it was just the annual gathering of what is this? And the head of that group was bragging about what they're going to do to me since I was a big, mature girl. But once again, an angel landed on my shoulder because as we gathered, I had to go number one. And I said I had to go. And this guy who was head of the group told this little lady to take me. And she did. And she looked at me and she said, you're not even an adult. How old are you? And I said, no, ma'am, I'm 11. And she said, you got to get out of here now. She said, why don't you get me? And run that way. I said, no, my I can't do that. I'm not allowed to hit adults. And she insisted and kept pushing. And I said, no, ma'am. So she picked up a rock and hit herself and told me to let's get my dress off and keep running. I took my dress off because my skin is black. And in the night, it wouldn't show, whereas that light organdy dress that I had on would show. And so I started running for my life and running and running and running through patches of thorns and all sorts of things. My body, my legs were bleeding. I knew not to go to any of the new pretty houses because that'd be white folks and they would capture me and give me back to clan. So I kept running and we found this elderly black couple. They took me in. They said, okay. Slammed the door. They turned out all their lights. They said, we're not taking you home tonight because the clan will be on your trail. So they closed their door and pretended they were asleep. And they said, tell us about who you are, where your family is. Everybody knew my mother who kind of traveled to heal people and did sort of things. So they took me to my house, but they dressed me as a boy. They flattened my chest, which was big, unfortunately, for me, with a towel. They pulled and pulled and pulled and then died. And then they took my hair and put it as a bun, and they put a man's hat on me, and, you know, I looked like a boy. So if the client were observing, you know, because the client was up for days hunting me, and so, you know, when I got home, my parents were very upset, to say the least. And they decided that they were going to keep closer track with me. So they were crying and telling me that from now on I was going to look ugly at church and look ugly at school for a while so I could disguise my being. So if they were searching for me, they would have found me again. So that was that. I survived that. And so, you know, I need to say, you know, people assume because I'm me and have had such terrific is that I hate white people. And one of the things that is ironic about my story is that later on in 1958, after I go to Central High School, I was picked up and raised by a white family who were very loving and kind and just the opposite of the Little Rock. 
And that happened as a result of your year at Little Rock High School. Exactly. That's more into the arena from 1957-4. It was in September 1957 that I was one of the Little Rock Nine. But the book I've written, March Forward Girl, goes zero to 14. Mm-hmm. And then Warriors picks up at 14. And I'm writing the end of that trilogy right now. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Melba Patillo-Beals. She's the acclaimed author of Warriors Don't Cry, a searing memoir of the battle to integrate Little Rock Central High School, her story as one of the Little Rock Nine. She's also the author of a new book, March Forward Girl, From Young Warrior to Little Rock Nine, about her life growing up in Little Rock. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. A lot of stories about your grandmother and how your grandmother was your best friend growing up that you told her about everything that was going on for you. I did, I did. Grandmother was indeed my everything. And every single day she would water her four o'clock plants. When I was little, I'd go out and wind my hand in her her house address. And I'd tell her what I was feeling because I couldn't talk to anyone else because I knew I was odd. She would tell me what to burn, what not to say anywhere. And she was a woman of tremendous faith, and she was very wise. Yeah, you know, she's at my core. I always say my mother is my intellectual ability. My grandmother's my soul. She's a keeper of my core being, of what I believe to be so. My religion is from my grandmother, who early on, you know, first thing I could write, she taught me to write and recite. Anything, you know, that is valid about me is to that lady. And she used to say about the way white people treated black people that if they knew better, they would do better. That we're going to have to forgive them and be patient for our own sake until the Lord can get through to them and things change. Yes, she would always say that in his time, this is not going to happen in your time. Blessings don't come how you choreograph them. You're not in charge. That's a hard concept. I've not yet totally conquered it, although I've got it for about 60, 70%. I'm not a higher power, and I'm not in charge of me or anybody else. Suddenly, now, my children left on the list. Nevertheless, you know, you and I, we think that way sometimes, don't we? We think, well, you know, that's and so it's going to happen this way. I'll make it happen this way. Oh, no, I've learned. No, 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 no. Your plans are what you're doing while God makes other things happen. They entertain you, your plans do. And so she would always just say, write this letter to God and tell me to get a little impatient. 
and stop it already because you're going to get us all killed. Calm down. Right, and you were very impatient for change, and she used to call you baby warrior. Exactly, but I wanted out. I was a baby warrior, and then I was willing to fight that system at all costs. And I do mean at all costs, because ultimately, although I became a wimpy whiny cat once inside, ultimately, I knew as a child even that the cost of that could have been my life. It's interesting that your grandmother also said no crying, no whining, no complaining, that there were times when you needed to do things like go to places where you were not welcomed. So there was a warrior in her as well. Well, you know, that Jackie Robinson story where he is on the ball field and they're screeching awful things to him and everything. And there was a question, Grandma, why go where you're not welcome? She said, well, you know what, sweetie? If you only go where you're welcome, you're going to be confined. You have to go up there and claim what's yours. Folks that have you stay in one place, but don't do that. Get busy. Claim what's yours. God gives it to you, but often it's your job to claim what's yours. She showed me that he was actually plowing a trail, building a road, cutting his way through the jungle so that his brothers and sisters could follow him. Mm-hmm. And that's what she was showing me, and that, you know, yes, he's having a hard time now, but there is a purpose here. And you will understand it later, and that, that was very true. Did you feel like he was a kind of a role model for you or an inspiration? You were six years old when he entered the major leagues, so I'm... Yeah, about seven, yeah, uh-huh. Were you old enough to recognize the significance of... Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. What I was old enough to recognize is the excuse of why he was doing it. Because, of course, my first question is, why are you going to take that punishment? Mm-hmm. That must be painful, because I understood pain, because look where I was. I had pain down, baby, early on. Pain in your soul, pain so deep inside you, you can't get up, you can't move. I felt that. I've been hurt so badly that you just sit there with your eyes blinking for a bit. And you have to work yourself up. You have to tell yourself, God loves me, and I know I can stand up. God loves me, and I know I am worthy. I've been hurt terribly by what people decided they were going to do to me. So considering all that, how did you become, how were you chosen to be one of the Little Rock Nine? In 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, you have to recall that it was at this time that the Supreme Court demanded, this was the the laydown of Jim Crow, those laws I told you about earlier. And their contention early on had been separate as equal. Just separately educate those Negroes, giving them minuscule crap and separate as equal. But the Brown versus the Board of Education contingency was, no, it's not. And so that being the case, Little Rock, Arkansas, was ordered, like all the other schools across the South, to integrate. They began with a program which they thought would yield them, in other words, let me do what you said, but let me do it on the lightest level I can. You say you want a peanut butter sandwich, I'll give you a half piece of bread and one tablespoon of peanut butter. I'm not going to give you. So what they did was they chose Central High School. There were 1,900 students there. And they chose Central High School 
as the one school in the city. Now, they have many high schools, but that's the one school they're going to integrate for a very good reason, because down the road in that proximity, they also built a brand-new African-American high school. They were doing this by where people live, see, where you live and what neighborhood. And they figured out that those students who qualified to go to Central High School, because remember, you had to live in the area to go to that school. You couldn't just live across the road or across the city. You had to live in a certain specific area. So at the same time, these plans were in the air three years. At the same time, they were mulling over these plans. They were building a brand-new black high school called Horace Mann. They were sending out cadres of white people to dissuade black people from going to Central, saying, oh, look at here, folks. We're building you a brand-new high school. Don't bother going to ours. And if you go to ours, bad things will happen to you. Bad things will happen to you, your relatives, your dogs, your cats. But despite all that, initially 116 students were chosen. Then the white people sent out people to go to all the black schools to sort of sift through. And that criteria was not only that you made good grades, but that you had a record of good behavior. You didn't talk back. You didn't threaten. You didn't fight. You didn't throw things. Because they wanted to have control of you. As they put it so beautifully, you were a good Negro. And so that's how we were all chosen. I met that criteria. When the teacher asked me, like three years before, did you want to go? And I raised my hand. And she said, take this paper home and have your mother sign it. And I said, well, you know, I thought to myself, I don't want to trouble my mother with this question. I'm going to sign this piece of paper and turn it in. And that's what I did. And it would be three years of planning before this issue would actually come to fruition, and that piece of paper would then, you know, commit me to go. And even then, it took a while for them to call and say, you're one of those people. But once having been chosen, the NAACP, lawyers from everywhere, and Quakers, everybody you could think of came down to train us, to prepare us to go. The town was filled with new consultants, and that's how that proceeded. When you so say- it was a huge operation. It wasn't just some people said we were paid. No, we weren't paid. One historian has said, of the nine of us, five of us are directly blood-related. I grew up with all those kids. I knew each and every one of them. Four of them I went to church with. I went to school with all of them at one point or another. So I knew them, and I was close to some of them. So we were never paid on. So you said that you were trained, that there was a lot of effort into training you for this integration. Yes. What was the training that you received? Don't talk back, don't hit back. Stop, drop, and roll. Somebody's going to kick you, hit you. You know, how do you protect yourself? And run. Know when to run. How not to be angry when somebody calls you the most horrifying names you can think about. What to do. And, you know, how to respond to the teachers. How you doing with that homework over there? How's your math doing? Every aspect of it that we needed, pretty much. And how hard was it for you to follow all of those rules and that training under those circumstances? And and how were you treated in school? What was happening to you and your fellow nine? Well, for three days, we were surrounded right by mobs, and we were almost killed. We were almost hanged. And that is what, you know, compelled Eisenhower to send in the 101st Airborne. So you see, we're serious. See, this, if you're 14 and 15 as we were, 
it's real hard to understand that when people say no, they don't want you in there, they mean that to the tune I will hang your butt rather than have you sit by me. And for a moment, if you think about that for a 15-year-old, what did you say? I don't get that. Hang? Why would you do that? What's wrong with me? What is it about me that would make you risk a killing to keep me out? And so it was a very difficult period in my life because I didn't quite understand. I knew that it would be difficult, but I didn't understand what was going on. President Eisenhower ultimately sent uniformed, gunned out 101st with all their jeeps and their helicopters overhead to escort us to school. So the first time I ever went, you know, to school protected, the first two times I went to school, first time we didn't get in, we were chased by a mob. I told you about that. Yeah. Second time we did get in, but by noon, we had to be brought out because the mob was breaking down the barriers and entering the school to kill us. Who were the people in this mob? Upstanding doctors, lawyers, and chiefs, Little Rock citizens who simply did not want to submit to the Supreme Court decision to integrate. So when you finally get a full military escort into the school and you start going every day, each one of you had a personal bodyguard. Well, we had four or five at the beginning. We had primary, secondary, tertiary, a guy who's pretty close to you, two guys behind him and three behind him. When we walked down the hall, there was a trail of uniformed soldiers that was quite formidable. And yet you still got kicked and tripped and the cursed. The favorite thing was to let us stick a dynamite and throw it. You know, the, this is a beautiful building, this school. Mind you, it ranked 10 in the nation in its efficiency as a building. It's eight square blocks in diameter, you know, with topiary in front and a waterfall, the whole thing. So the school is huge, and so it has these beautiful, till today, I was just there beautiful carved-out areas that carry you from one floor to another. And they would bend over the railing and cast down the most awful of things. So these bodyguards that you had, what was their role? What were they able to do for you? And what were they not able to do for you? They saved their lives. They couldn't go in the girls' bathroom, but they could certainly police the halls. One guy, my personal bodyguard, saved my eyesight. Guy walks up with a water gun kind of thing and sprays acid in my eyes. And he grabbed my ponytail, I have very long hair, and he jammed my face beneath the water fountain. He just kept it running. I was screaming. I dropped my books. I didn't know what to do. And a soldier grabbed my hair. He just slammed me in the water fountain. He didn't stop running it. And so they did their best to protect us as best they could. They couldn't go in the classroom or in the bathroom, but still, they were life-saving dudes. But they could only do their best to protect you. They couldn't do, they couldn't do anything to any of the other white students, though. Absolutely, they were not supposed to. But they could shield and defend us. You know, some guys coming at you with a knife, they're going to go between you and that guy. Plus, they were carrying weapons. There was a guy, if you got into real trouble... They called in a guy who was 375 pounds wearing goggles because he's wearing three or four sets of handcuffs and a nightstick on either side. Huge gentleman. Nasty attitude. Very much suited to do his job. Smile, though. Smile sweetly. But uh, he could take care of business. God bless his soul. May he rest in peace wherever he is. Because without him, we'd be dead. That's just being blunt. Very dead. Very dead. So after a year of that, I mean, you went through that every day for a year. 
which is what in the end gets you. In the end, it's not the depth of the pain. It's the fact that it's so constant that makes you nutty. You know every day you're going to be wounded, injured, pierced with the back of a flag point, or you know, something bad's going to happen today. Someone's going to come up and walk on your heels to your Achilles tendon scream. You're going to get slammed around. You're going to get tripped in the hallway, eggs in your face. One kid smeared a chair with peanut butter, put glass in it, and I went and sat in the chair because I sat in that chair every day. And I sat in it without looking. I backed up into it, you know, because I figured it was safe. To this day, when I go to the movies, wherever I go, I sit in the back of the room. People are saying, no, but I go, okay, come forward, dear. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, how has that affected your life? Well, for one thing, I'm a rather fat girl, and I go up and down. And the doctor has always said, you know, you you will read to protect yourself. That's your shield. My defense mechanism, I figure... If I'm a pudgy chick, you're not going to walk up on me because there is that fear. What remains is fear. Someone's going to hit me, trip me, or something like that that I have not quite gotten rid of, although my belief in God has been quite helpful. And then when somebody peels away your protective layer of shield as a human being, it's difficult to rebuild that. So if you're punished over a period of a year, it has a psychological effect of your expectation to be punished, yeah. And we were taught that if no matter how hard you're hit, you look at somebody and say, thank you, or do that again, please. Because <sighs> you don't want to give them the pleasure of thinking that they landed a blow that really was detrimental, really. Because you know? that would just encourage them. That would just encourage them to do it. So, mm-hmm. Like if they would throw an egg, I would say, oh, my goodness, that's so good for the skin. Bless you, dear. I'd really be thinking, you're messing up my new dress. My mother just sewed this dress. I'm going to have to go home now and get washed down or... Or wear this stinky egg for the rest of the day. It was trouble to go home. Now you got to get a bodyguard. Now you got to get a jeep. Now you got to drive all the way home. Shower down. Hose down in the backyard. Shower down. Get another dress. Come back. So after that first year at Central High, what happened after that? The governor of Arkansas closed the schools to halt integration because people were just really angry. And I was sent home. My very favorite person, my grandmother, died in October of that year. And I was home with her. And I was in this empty house. It was a traumatic year for me in my life. I was in this empty house with the ghost of my grandmother, trying to grow up, trying to survive, trying to struggle. Because she had been my heart, my soul, my life, my everything. Trying to behave in a way that she thought I would behave. And I did mature. And after a while, in about March, April of that year, like every black person, we have relatives that are passing for white. And our relative, in this case, was a male who would come visit us twice a year, probably. He was the son of one of my aunts. And so, blonde, blonde, and blonde, he could pass for white. His wife, to this day, does not know he's really black. He has black children, but they don't know they're black. And so, he called my mother and said, you know, these placards that you're seeing all over the city, they said 10,000 dead, 5,000 alive, because under court order, we were the only nine people that had permission to go to this school under this court order. So they figured if they could kill off nine teenagers, that they wouldn't have to anyway. So he said, you know, they're serious. And so my mother sat up all night making dresses and stuff, and they slapped me on a plane, and I went to California, because the NAACP had put out a request saying, who will shelter these children? And I ended up being adopted 
by a white family. Very blessed, sweet people. They were my bridge to adulthood. So what you're saying is that the Ku Klux Klan put out a reward, basically a hit on all nine of you. In their own delicate way, that's exactly what they did. And they were not embarrassed by it. They wrote all these flyers. Some of these flyers exist today. And it was $10,000 dead or $5,000 alive. Yeah, and for a moment, I'd like for you to think about what $10,000 would buy you. At that time? A house, a car, everything you want. Wow. So your parents knew that that was your death warrant. Sure. I'd been under one. There's not, nothing new. Right. They shot in our front window. I couldn't go anywhere. You go downtown, you get shot. I got a picture in the paper, address printed. I mean, I've been under a death threat for the whole two-year period. What's new? Wow. I didn't realize that. Sweetheart, even... I'm under a death threat today. Wow. On the Internet, we get, you know, I just went to Arkansas. I had enough bodyguards. I mean, I had the Arkansas police, individual bodyguards. The hotel was loaded. At one point, I was at a concert, and I wanted to go to a desolate floor where when I went bathroom, people wouldn't come in and ask me for autographs. I was just tired for a moment, you know. And when I came out of that bathroom, there was a collection of nine bodyguards there. I spent my life being under threat. I guess I'd like to know what you would like to leave us with as we grapple with this continuing racism that still exists in our nation and, and the incredible degrees of polarization that's going on in our nation and all over the world. Number yeah. one, one of us is never free until all of us is free. Don't count yourself free until all your brothers and sisters are free. And number two, love is the answer. Violence is never the answer. I wrote that book, Large Forward Girl, in hopes that people would understand when you oppress someone, no matter what the reason, they're fat, they're skinny, they're gay, they're whatever you'd like to say. They have yellow hair, they have green hair, whatever. You hurt their feelings. You take away their pride. You injure their self-esteem. Stop it already, because you can't win. God and good ultimately triumph. So let go. And then consider the consequence of what you do. You cannot spend your life disagreeing with and fighting other people. Why not take a moment to listen? Just listen. What is it that this other person wants? You don't have to say I'm giving it to you. You don't have to marry him, invite him home for dinner. It's just about respecting every individual. It's like being equal. If you want to be equal, you better see equal. Because it's not possible if you don't understand. It's not about white people bestowing equality, see? That's what March Forward tries to tell you. And that's what my white father and my grandmother taught me. That it's not about bestowing equality on you. You are equal at birth. Claim it. Name it. Move on. For all those who feel being put upon because of how they're being oppressed today. Uh-uh. You're so precious. There's only one of you of a kind. So march forward. Like my grandmother told me every time I complained, she said march forward. And when I told Martin Luther King... I was tired of being mistreated. You know what he said to me, Nova? You're not clear about your purpose. Don't be selfish. You're not doing this for yourself. You're doing this for generations yet unborn. And so we just have to be more conscious. Yeah, we continue to divide, but based on what? And where do we think it's going to get us? And what is the goal of that? 
that's what I can tell you as a girl, 76, make a way to make peace, that's all. Because there is nothing I have to tell you in this world that is more incredible than that feeling of peace in your soul. When you've done right and you've carried on. And so every New Year's I say, peace at any cost. Peace at any cost, and you have paid a tremendous cost throughout your life. Fear I have, done my share. <laughs> Nevertheless, wherever I am today, I deserve to reach out and touch those golden years, man, and I like peace. I don't want to do anything right this moment that's going to cause me to lose my peace the next moment. So things like trying to get revenge or to get retributive justice doesn't bring peace. Are you kidding? Try it and see how it works for you. As I was reading this, I had those old familiar feelings of rage and just all those murderous feelings that that just poison the soul. And it took a while for me to, to get over that and to remember that that's not what I want in my life at all. Well, I will say to you once again that love is the only answer. Color should not be how you judge. Color of the skin. One can certainly make descriptions and decisions about who you want to be friends. But as far as seeing others equal, we have no choice right now. We need to come together and put our energy on saving the earth and feeding ourselves and others, bringing some peace to the earth. So I hope that people will join me in seeking peace. Mm-hmm. Well... Melba Patillo-Beals, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. And it's been my pleasure. God bless. I hope your day is wonderful. And God bless you too, and have a wonderful day and wonderful rest of your life. Thank you so much again. You're quite welcome. Thank you. That was Melba Patillo-Beals. She's a former journalist, retired university professor and the acclaimed best-selling author of Warriors Don't Cry, a searing memoir of the battle to integrate Little Rock Central High School. In 1998, she was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. She's one of only 280 civilians in American history to receive that award for her courageous role in the harrowing integration of our nation's school system. And she's the author of a new book, March Forward Girl, From Young Warrior to Little Rock Nine, about her life growing up as a child in Little Rock. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week.